We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Everybody should have in your handout this morning, you ought to have in front of you a sheet that is there in that front and back that says dispensationalism. You got one? Well, this morning, and you'll notice I've got the pulpit early. I've got it at 10, 15, 9.15. I pretty much had to run Kendall out of Texas to be able to get it, all right? But I've got it at 9.15, and I'm going to teach till about 10 after. I'm going to teach you for about an hour this morning. And there's a reason, because I'm going to go through the entire Bible with you. Uh, in what is called dispensationalism. If you have enjoyed the teaching at any time of Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, if you've read anything by Dr. Charles Ryrie, the Ryrie Study Bible, if you've uh, read the series by Tim LaHaye, Left Behind, if you've read anything by Hal Lindsey, if you're an old-timer from the 60s and 70s, if you have enjoyed anybody from Dallas Theological Seminary, Western uh, Conservative Seminary, from Jerry Falwell's school at Liberty, if you'd enjoyed anybody from um, uh, Denver Seminary, from Grace Theological, from Trinity Evangelical, if you've enjoyed Denton Bible Church, if you've enjoyed me, <laughs> you have enjoyed dispensationalism. And I don't know if you know it, but you've enjoyed something that hasn't been enjoyed really until the 20th century. And that is called dispensationalism. And I'm going to teach you, and you might wonder why I'm teaching this to you, but if you'll just stay with me. Dispensationalism is the classic way to take the Bible literally and to see the Bible as an entire unit. Now, let me begin with this. Um, dispensationalism. Okay, what is a dispensation? What does the word dispensation mean? It's used, I think, three times in the New Testament. A dispensation is simply a word that we don't use anymore. It was used in the 1600s and the 1700s. And uh, it's in the King James Bible. But we don't use it anymore. It's antiquated. Um, what dispensation was, was the dispensing of power. The dispensing of authority. The only time that you'll ever hear, a disp hear dispensation used is if when you go to the powers that be of an organization and ask if you can do something that that organization will officially sanction. For instance, you can't bring food and drink in the sanctuary. But I have a special dispensation from the elders. I must have my addictive substance. And quite often you will see me with coffee. Now, if Brad brings it, we toss him out. <laughs> because he has no edict from the elders. Um, if you don't pay your taxes on time, that's not good. You can get a fine. 
but you can appeal to the IRS and they, hypothetically, hopefully, will grant you a dispensation. They will officially, from the top down, dispense their power to say, you can bring it in X amount of days late. And that's what a dispensation is. It's an administration. It's an authority that is extended. The Greek word that is used for dispensation is the word oiko, house, nomia, law. An oikonomia. What word do we get from oikonomia? Economy. The word economy is how a culture is governed. You can be under a democratic economy or a republican economy. They are means of governing the country. And so, um, dispensationalism is talking about a divinely ordained period of history where requirements are made of God's people or and of mankind in general. Periods of history that God will change in his requirements of man. God doesn't change. Man doesn't change. But the means by which God governs them changes. This is the way you have raised your children. Have you noticed? When your child is an infant, there is no dispensation given them. They are innocent. You just tolerate everything they do. Then they go into toddlers and into little guys, and now there are the dispensation changes, and you govern them a different way. When they become high schoolers, you chain them <laughs> because they're mad. And so the dispensation changes. Hopefully when they're singles and young adults, you pull back the reins, your administration or your authority or your dispensation of them changes. See, it's governed according to the response of those whom you govern. Well, if you do a simple reading of your Bible, you see that there are dispensational changes. You're never saved differently. You're always saved the same way, by faith in the mercy of God who grants sacrifice, Old Testament or New Testament. Um, man doesn't change as far as his sinfulness, but the dispensation of God will change as man sins. And so as you read your Bible, you will see seven different times that God says, do this, man sins, and God tightens the rules. Man will break them, and God will judge him and then alter the rules. God won't change. Man won't change. Salvation won't change. But the means by which God governs him changes. And when you see the totality of the Bible, you see the, the span of the story and the narrative of God's activity towards humans. Now, I'm going to begin with Genesis 1 and I'm going to take you to Revelation 22. And then I'm going to show you the distinctives of what makes dispensationalism dispensationalism. On your sheet, you have four different areas. The, on the far left, you have the period in the Bible, and then you have the requirement of that dispensation. And then next to it, you have the sin of man, that man will not submit to it. And then you will have the judgment that is given him. 
And then in the far left, you will have the change, the alteration and dispensations. Now, stay with me. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you have a period that is called innocence. And it is because man was created innocent and holy in the image of God. But he is given a test. Adam and Eve are given a dispensation. There's a requirement of them. And the requirement is, eat of the tree of life. And if they do, they shall receive immortality from the hands of God. And we don't know what would have happened after that. It's the tree of life. And there is another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God simply says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but this one you cannot. That was not too much to ask. At all periods of human history, man is tested as to his love and obedience of God. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, there is a sin. They ate, and as a result, the judgment is the fall of man, otherwise known as the curse. Man physically dies in time. Man spiritually dies to God and is darkened and he comes underneath the spell of Satan. Is nature touched by the fall? Yes, it is. The kingdom that man governs is touched. The animal realm that he governs, are they touched by the fall? Yes, they are. And so the curse goes out. Now, if you'll go on the far left, you have another period that is called conscience. Now, after Adam and Eve fell, God did a very interesting thing. God said, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Did Adam and Eve physically die right then? They did not, because God provided a sacrifice. He took an animal, and that animal died. And that is the oldest religion known to man, is the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then, right after that, God pronounced an edict. And God said, uh, the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. Who's the seed of woman that will crush Satan's head? Christ. That is the earliest gospel in the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The seed of woman will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will wound his heel. He himself would be injured. Do y'all happen to know of a divine being that happened to die for you that sin could be atoned for? See, that's the earliest gospel. And throughout the Bible, you'll see there's always a sacrifice for sin. Always. And it anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ. So, salvation will never change throughout the scriptures. Well, if you go over toward conscience, in Genesis 4 through 8, with Cain and Abel, with those generations that come after Cain and Abel, all the way to Noah, those couple of thousand years, man was governed by what is called conscience. There was no written law, but God merely governed man by the innate moral sense that man has. See, that's what conscience means, with sentia, with knowledge, that you know what you're doing when you do it. And if a criminal pleads that he had no sense of right and wrong, what does he plead? Insanity. 
Now, our culture says if you don't know right and wrong, you plead brilliance. But until you, when you get down to the hard facts of judgment, you plead insanity when you don't know right and wrong. There is a consentia, a consent that man gives to right and wrong. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, remember Cain and Abel, what they're doing? They sacrifice to God. So this sacrifice of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 and following becomes an institution. They sacrifice. And do you remember what God says to Cain? God rejects Cain's sacrifice because he brought it with evil intent. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when they make it with evil intent. And God did not look upon Cain's sacrifice. And then God gave Cain some counsel. Why is your countenance fallen? If you do good, will not your countenance be lifted up? See, that was the dispensational requirement. Do good. Offer sacrifice and penance. That's all that God required. And so the dispensation was the dispensation of conscience. How many want to bet whether it worked or not? Can you govern man by man's instinctive honoring of the God of creation? Will that work? Now God's the creator. Amen? Man has conscience. Amen? Ergo, man should be governed by conscience well enough to bring law and order. Right? Wrong. Is something wrong with God? Is something wrong with conscience? What's the problem? The heart of man. And the sin, by Genesis chapter 6, it says the earth is full of violence and man had corrupted his way upon the earth. So, let me give you an oral test. Does innocence work to govern man? There's only two possibilities. No. Does conscience work? To govern man? No. And so God now judges the earth in what is called the flood. And every living thing is destroyed save for Noah, his three sons, their wives, those eight people. Well, after that, you have what is called the period of government. Whenever Noah goes off the ark, God can't simply say, do good and sacrifice. Why won't God say do good and sacrifice? Because it's a proven failure. So what does he do? He does something different. He changes. God doesn't change. Man doesn't change. But we have different rules now. We're not simply going to take a murderer and separate him as a vagrant like we did Cain. Noah Whoever sheds man's blood, in chapter 6, what was the problem? Violence filled his hands. Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, because he is the image and the glory of God. You have the institution of what is called man's governing man, according to the absolute of God the Creator and of man with the inalienable right of dignity and life. It's called government. 
And so in Genesis 9 through 11, we have the institution of the dispensation of government. Incidentally, is capital punishment something instituted under law? Be careful. Is capital punishment under law? Yes. Was it instituted under law? No. It's instituted pre-law under Noah. And so, the purpose is of the requirement is to eliminate murderers and to establish divine law. How do you think it's going to work? Does government work? Has government worked? Man in the image of the one true God, and thus that creator recognized and righteousness erected? Has it worked? It hadn't worked. Is God the problem? Is the hypotheses of government the problem? What's the problem? The governors. Those governed will not submit. And so what you have, the sin, is called the Tower of Babel. Man put himself in God's place. He would not submit to God. He said, let's build a city, let's build a tower into the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves. And a guy went forth from there named Nimrod, who conquered ten different cities, and we now see bloodshed. As a matter of fact, the term kingdom is first used about that man from the Tower of Babel called Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was in this city. And so now we've got another problem. The rebellion of man against government. The judgment was the confusion of man's tongues. If you take a bunch of 12-year-old boys in a 6th grade classroom, you've got four 12-year-old boys sitting together with communion among themselves. Now, unity, diversity with unity, is that a good thing and a divine thing? It is. What will those 12-year-old boys do to unity? If you let four 12-year-old boys stay together, they will burn down civilization as we know it. So what do you do? You kill them. No, not yet. That's later. What are you going to do to these 12-year-old boys? You separate them. That's what God does to the children of men. They cannot speak the same language. And so the evil process is now slowed down. The Tower of Babel is an anchor to slow down the evil of man. Someday they're all going to come together again in Revelation 17. And it's not pretty in Babylon the Great. Are you with me so far? Well, what we do now, our fourth dispensation, is the dispensation of promise. Out of all of those nations that go forth... God's going to raise up a nation that will be his voice to the nations of Babel. Out of all of these 70 tongues that go forth, God will raise up a nation that will be a nation of truth. Who will the nation be? The Germans? No. The Swiss? No. Scandinavians? Russians? Americans? No. God will create his own nation. And so in Genesis 12, God takes one man. 
Abraham and his wife Sarah. And from them God takes one man, Isaac. And then God takes one man, Jacob. And God takes his 12 sons. And God does something he's never done. He gives a promise to a people. It's the dispensation of promise. I will give you this land and I will make you a great nation. I'll multiply you. And in your seed will the nations be blessed. All of those nations that went out from chapter 10 and 11, I'm going to bless them through a Jew. Incidentally, are we as Gentiles pretty obligated and appreciative of a singular Jew that has blessed us? I'm kind of fond of him myself. Well, this is called the dispensation of promise. What do you think? If you take a man who can't have a kid and give him a kid, and that kid can't have a kid and you give him a kid, and that kid can't have a kid and you give him a kid, and they have 12 kids that become about a million kids, would you think they could be governed by God? Wouldn't you think they could? Well, the requirement in the time of promise was threefold. Isaac, stay in the land. Don't you go down to Egypt. You stay right here. Number two, you trust in Jehovah alone. Don't you sacrifice to another God. I don't care if Ai is, if Bethel is. I don't care what Sodom and Gomorrah does. That area. You sacrifice to the true God. And then thirdly, you do justice. And you command your household to follow in the ways of God. Is that too much to ask? That's not too much to ask. Stay in the promise. Honor the God of the promise. By doing justice and equity to your fellow man. Well, how did they do? By the end of the book of Genesis, those 12 brothers... Actually, Benjamin wasn't yet born, and so 10 of them took Joseph that instituted morality, who brought a bad report about them back to his daddy. What'd they do to old Joseph? They murdered him, and then one of them spoke up and said, there's no money in murder. Let's sell him. So they sold him. And then they lied to their daddy and broke his heart. And they maintained that lie for about 15 years. God takes, Joseph takes him away to Egypt. And of course, you know the rest of the story. He broke those other 11 men by bringing them into the presence of Joseph and made them repent of what they did. Well, the sin was the murder of Joseph. And then if you go, don't worry about looking for it. Well, be here too long. But while those brothers went away into Egypt and grew to a great nation, you know what they did in Egypt? On the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. And I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. 
I am the Lord your God. Was that too much to ask a nation of two million that had come from a barren father, grandfather, great-grandfather? Was that too much to ask? But they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That's in Ezekiel 20. Did promise work? Yes or no? I'm about to quit as a pastor. <laughs> did promise work? No. Did innocence work? Conscience? Uh, government? Innocence. Is God changing? Is man changing? He's being unveiled for what he is. What is changing? The dispensation. The administration of rebellious man. You know, when you have a kid, one guy's put it like this. When you have a kid, your dispensation changes of your kid. As the kid gets better. He starts as a little bitty boy, little bitty girl, and they don't have sense enough coming out of the rain. And slowly and surely, you put law on them and then take law away and let them flourish. With man, he starts out innocent and he becomes worse and worse and worse. Your kid starts out and hopefully becomes better and better and better. You take away rules, with God he imposes rules. That's the way man is. Well, what does God do? It's called the judgment of Egypt. Ezekiel 20, verse 8 says, Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them and to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Uh, promise will not work. Well, what are we going to do now? Well, we'll take the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You with me? You seen the movie? We take them out. And then we go to Sinai and we do something different. We're not just going to put them under promise anymore and under love. They won't keep that. They'll murder their own brother. We're going to do something different. Exodus 19 all the way through the end of the Old Testament is called the dispensation of law. We will write it down for them. We'll give them moral law. We'll give them ceremonial law of sacrifice and of mediation and atonement. We'll give them hygienic law, a symbolic law to educate them about separation and cleanliness. We'll give them civil law about their kings, their judges, and their courts. And God gives them the most amazing divinely sent means of government that the world has ever known. Our American Constitution is a distant little echo of the creation's God and man with inalienable rights. I mean, this is the Mercedes. This is the Dodge Charger. <laughs> of, of law right here. I'm, I apologize for that. The requirement, God only tells him to do three things. Obey the law, 
The law was not impossible. Any individual law they could do. The totality of law they could not do, nor can any man. Obey the law. And when you don't, sacrifice for forgiveness. And then wait for the coming of the Messiah, the seed through whom the nations will be blessed. God said to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, he said, uh, I'm going to send a prophet among you that will be like Moses. That just as Moses took his stance between, the, between God and the nation to mediate for them and to bring his word, he's going to be a prophet that will mediate between God and men for you. He will make God known to you and he will make you reconciled to God. He will be the living word. He'll be the lamb that will lay his life down. And the prophets get very specific who this man will be, the Messiah. Well, if you go from the book of Judges on, once man gets in the land, you see disobedience, you see idolatry. And what God does is he sends to them the prophets. Oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen with her chicks, but you were not willing. He sends to them Joel. He sends to them Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Hosea. Then he sends them uh, Zephaniah. And he sends them as they go into captivity. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Did Israel repent underneath the prophet's preaching? They did not. Until finally God sent his last word. My beloved son. And a virgin born child who walks on water. Who calls himself the I am. Who raises the dead. Calls that nation to repent. How'd they do? They killed him slower, worser, harder, bloodier, more violent than they did any of the prophets before him. Isaiah got off light. Manasseh carved him in half by sticking him in the trunk of a carob tree and sawed him in half. He got off light. He died within seconds. They strung this man's death and humiliation out over about 18 hours. Well, what is the judgment? Your house is being left to you desolate, and the sword will follow you on a gloomy and a dark day, and I will banish you among the nations. And in the morning time you will say, oh, that it were night. In the night time you'll say, oh, that it were morning. And I will follow you, and I will judge you, and I will pour out a spirit of darkness upon you. And you made me jealous by those which were not gods. I will make you jealous by those which are not a people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. It is the dispersion and the hardening and the judgment of the nation of Israel. Well, did law work? It didn't work. Promise, conscience, innocence. It didn't work. The dispensation is met with sin that is met with judgment and then we tighten it down and we shackle them a little bit more and they will not submit. Well, 
now we come to the next of last dispensations and it's called the period of grace. Because in the wisdom of God, that man's brutal murder was the means by which God the Father, according to prophecy, laid upon him the sin of the world. And now the seed of Abraham will be a blessing to the entire nation and all the nations of Babel. You have the dispensation of grace where God says, I will change you. And here's the way I'll do it. I'll take my law and I'll put it on your heart. And I'll take my spirit and I'll put it in your mind. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. I will take you and I will simply kill you. That's a good way to bring change. I will crucify you with Christ. And you will share in his life. And I will make you a new creation. And that is called the grace of God. Amen? We're kind of fond of it. And now the requirement of man, Acts chapter 17, God hath commanded men everywhere to repent. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to submit to the law of Christ that is love. That is all that God requires. We are not under law, but we are under grace. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's it. And he hath commanded men everywhere to repent. India is to forsake its idols and its pantheism. Russia is to forsake its communism. America is to forsake its secular humanism. Tibet and Nepal are to forsake their Buddhism. The Middle East is to forsake Allah and to believe in the one true God that has made himself known through the only true validated book that has made itself known through the only man who is raised from the dead who has brought about the greatest culture that the world has ever known is light and salt, and that is Western civilization. Has it worked? Anybody check whether India's repented yet? Has Russia come around as yet? Anybody read this morning about L.A.? Was there a mass revival in L.A.? Has Dallas fallen prostrate and asked the God of mercy for his grace? I don't think so. Has grace worked? It's worked within the lives of his elect. But has God been able to rule mankind through grace? You know what the sin will be? The rejection of Christ by the world. The Apostle Paul said that in the last times, the Spirit explicitly says, men will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. The Bible says of the church that the second coming will not occur until the apostasy comes first. The Apostle Paul said that in the last days, he said, men will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will collect to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. How does the New Testament end? From Matthew until the end, does the New Testament end with the epistles of Romans through Jude on the beauties of the Christian life. Is Jude the last book of our Bible? It is not. What's the last book? 
Revelation. Is that a pretty book? It's a bloody book because man will not submit. And so the final judgment to come is called the tribulation. It is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Revelation chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 18. When God will bend the world till it breaks. I'll never forget as a young Christian hearing Billy Graham preach. And uh, he was preaching to a lot of us collegians. And he was talking about the second coming. You know why he was talking about the second coming? Because Billy Graham's a dispensationalist. And Billy Graham was preaching. And he just started going through the Old Testament and quoting every time you saw the phrase, On that day. Isaiah, he'd read it. On that day. Jeremiah, on that day. And he let us know the world is not going to respond to this gospel. And there's going to be a reckoning for planet Earth someday. And it's called the day of the Lord. Well, the tribulation period will both judge man for his rejection of God from the, from the Garden of Eden on. It will judge man. And secondly, it will bring Israel to its knees. That's why when you read Revelation 6 through 19, the tribulation period, you see Israel responding in great numbers. Well, the last period on the bottom left is the dispensation of the kingdom. It's where God imposes His will on planet Earth. To where we take the Christians out. We snatch them in the rapture so that they will escape the wrath to come, like Paul said. That's why the word church is not mentioned in Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 18, because we're not here. We don't appear until Revelation 19 when the bride in fine linen, bright and clean, comes with the Savior. Aren't you glad? Yeah, because the tribulation period is not simply a period of, of persecution. It's the wrath of God. And we escape wrath. If there's a burglar in your house, don't shoot through your wife to get him. Remove your wife. Remove Lot. Remove Noah. Remove the widow of Elijah's day. Then get him. Well, the, the kingdom is when Christ returns, judges the nations for those who followed after the beast and puts them in the lake of fire. Judges Israel who were not ready for his coming and casts them away from them, him into judgment. Returns with his church, raises the Old Testament faithful whose spirits are even now with him raises the bodies, the tribulation saints who died, and with these three personages goes into the kingdom. And he shall shatter the nations, Psalm 2, as with a rod of iron. And thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? We win. Big brother shows up and just brings everything underneath his purposes. He, in what Paul calls the fullness of the time, heads everything back in Christ. Rogue nature. Will nature be under him in that day? Will the nations be under him in that day? Will 
the animal realm be under him in that day? Yes. He brings, like Romans 11 says, life from the dead. Like Jesus said, in the regeneration, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. All, may, all the requirement is, is to worship the king. Zechariah 14, the nations send up an emissary to Jerusalem and they worship the king. So how are you saved in every age? The same as you are in the Garden of Eden, the same as you are now. Faith in the mercy of God as seen in the sacrifice that God provides. The shadows of the Old Testament were animals. The substance of today is the Son of God, but we don't see His face in the kingdom. Uh, we shall see Him face to face and no longer as in a mirror dimly, and we shall know fully as we are fully known. We'll see Him. So you're always saved the same way. By the seed of woman that will crush the serpent's head, yet he himself is wounded. Does, man does God change? Does man change? Does salvation change? No. What changes? The dispensation. What prompts the change? The sinfulness of man. When I was at Dallas Seminary, we had a professor there named Norm Geisler, and I remember him making, he was a pretty good philosopher, and I remember him making the statement about the dispensations. He said the dispensations are not really taught under theology proper, the doctrine of God. He said they're taught under anthropology, the doctrine of man. Man deserves everlasting fire because at every single point of history, he will shake his fist. Well, I'm going to have you look at your Bible on this one. Look at Revelation chapter 20, would you? It's merely two minutes till ten. I've caught all day. I may never let Kendall back, you know. Look at Revelation chapter 20. At the end of the kingdom period for a thousand years, would you think that man would be pretty appreciative after a thousand years of blessedness? I mean, I'd appreciate four years of enjoyment down here. A thousand years. You're going to have to teach your kids by faith that man was ever sinful. Well, in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 7, it's kind of the Garden of Eden 2. Let's see if man, not just one Adam and Eve, but a whole population of planet Earth, let's see if they will take a temptation. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He's bound for a thousand years. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. You know why he calls them Gog and Magog? Because those are typical names of the enemies of God. So has man's nature changed? It has not. To gather them together for the war, the number is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Can y'all believe that? Did the kingdom work? Yes or no? Say no. It's okay. It didn't. Man will not submit to the risen Christ in the gospel, and he will not submit to the present Christ in the kingdom. Unbelievable. 
fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil, in verse 10, is cast in the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. So the satanic trinity is consumed. Now, let me stop for just a minute. As you can see, we're at the end of the book. There's only this much left. What has this much been a sad tale about? Man. Has God been patient? Has God been good? Let me ask you, would you be this good? If it had been a Bible by man, the good stuff would have been here. The judgment would have been here. With God, the good stuff is here, and the judgment is here. What a God. What a deity. Now, if you're God, what do you do? Well, let's just take, let's start over and take one man, one woman, put them in a garden. Hello. We tried that. Let's just tell them to do what's right. Hello. We tried that. Oh, the conscience stuff, yeah. Let's threaten them with capital punishment. Failed. Let's take a miracle nation. How about let's name them Jew, Judah, the praise of God. It didn't work. How's about I give my own son? They use his name as an invective. Jesus. Christ. Didn't work. Let's come back and kill everybody. Doesn't work. Let's personally rule them from the Son of God there in Jerusalem. Doesn't work. What are you going to do? You're expended. Without even looking, how many dispensations do you have? Innocence, conscience, government, promise, kingdom, grace. I'm sorry, I messed up. Law, grace, kingdom. You got seven. What's the perfect number? Seven. Why did every bride in the world get married yesterday? <laughs> seven, seven, seven. Luck really helps you in marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> another sermon for another day. So what are we going to do? We got a problem. What are we going to do? You know what he does? How about we incinerate the entire cosmos for beginners? The old heavens and earth will pass away. And then we will raise from the dead every wicked man that has ever lived, and he will stand before the great white throne, and Christ, who was not Savior, shall be judged. And the last enemy to be conquered will be death. And we will put them in a place where nothing of God will ever cross their minds again. We will put them in the lake of fire. Then let's make new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 22.1. Where righteousness dwells. And let's take a holy city and bring it down from the presence of God. And now they will live happily ever after. God's people. With no wickedness to ever bother them. We will just send them to hell. And we will put them in glory forever. Well, that's your Bible. And by the end of the narrative, it is shown man is sinful, no doubt. 
God. What can you say about God at the end of this book? Is God wise? Is God patient? Is God gracious and loving? Is God mighty and awesome? Amen. Charles Wesley said the Bible's not a book you would write if you could write it. And it's not a book you could write if you would write it. The Bible's not a book you would write if you could write. We don't glorify God in our religions. We glorify man and we minimize God. This is a book that glorifies God. Now, what is dispensational? You got 10 minutes in you? Everybody do it like a... Come on now. You can do it. Get back in your seats. <laughs> Are they okay? Are y'all all right? Penny, go check that couple, I think. That guy went like this. I mean, I just taught you the whole Bible for crying out loud. Can you give me 10 minutes? I know what you're thinking. Brad looked at his wife and he said, do we still have to come from now on? We just got the, yes, you got to come. Why, what is dispensationalism opposed to? The key on dispensationalism, all the guys that would ever disagree with what I just showed you, most of them, while I was teaching you this, would have done like this until about the last 10 minutes. When I talked about the kingdom being a literal place, with a literal savior on a literal world and a literal devil, a literally bound for a literal thousand years. Now that period in Revelation is not just unique. It's all in the Old Testament prophets. It's, I'm told it's like 40% of your Bible is on the summing up of all things in the Messiah, the kingdom, the hope of man. Well, this theology is uh, as... I don't want to get too complicated for simplicity purposes. The theology that takes the kingdom and does not make it literal was the predominant theology before the 1900s. It was called Reform theology, um, Calvinistic theology. Now, let me make a point. When somebody comes to me and says, You, Tom Denton Bible, are y'all reformed? I say, in what? See, re Reformation, Reformed theology is too broad. You just can't say, are you Reformed? Maybe I am and maybe I'm not. What are you talking about? Are you talking about, am I Reformed in my view of God as sovereign and able to dispense mercy upon whom He pleases? Yes, me and old John Calvin are just like this. How about man being totally depraved and unable to respond? Yes, we are reformed. Um, the atonement of Christ as completely sufficient to the judgment of God, we are reformed. The predestination of God to bestow His mercies on whom He will, we are reformed. We're right in keeping. But Mr. Luther, Mr. Calvin, and the other guys, they saw the church before about the 1500s, they saw the church as symbolically being the kingdom. It's called amillennialism, that there is no millennium. There is no literal millennium. It's now. I don't believe that we 
allegorically are the fulfillment of the Bible's hopes. Is Satan bound during this time? He's on a long chain. If he is, because he's whooping me every day. No, we are not the kingdom. And according to Calvin and a lot of those other guys, they weren't amillennial as much as the later, the guy, the later guys were post-millennial. They felt that Christ would come after, post, a millennium established by the church. They held to, in a sense, a, a literal kingdom. But it was established by the church, utopia. And during the time of the Reformation, westward expansion, and a lot of this, it looked like a kingdom. It looked like the church was going to bring about this good. Prior to those guys, Catholicism and the Holy Roman Empire looked suspiciously like a kingdom. But only allegorically speaking. No, I don't believe, John, Jack to his buddies, Calvin, I don't believe the church is going to establish a utopia. Do y'all think we are? Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, they couldn't do it. You going to do it? We can't even get Christians to agree upon drapes in the pastor's parsonage. We'll fight over the drop of a hat. You think we're going to make the lion lie down with a lamb? We, can, we can't get Baptists and Methodists to eat with each other. We're going to bring about the kingdom? No, we're not going to bring the kingdom. Why is it that the 20th century was the century that looked at amillennialism and did this? Looked at postmillennialism? And did this. Because the 20th century was the century of blood. We're not bringing a kingdom. But the 20th century was the century of the arisal of something. In 1948, who arose? Israel. That is the linchpin of dispensational thought. That's why with the pessimism of the 20th century... With the arisal of Israel, with hopes only in God for peace, man returned in Protestantism to a literal rendering of the Bible that equals dispensationalism. Now, you got four minutes? Just look on the back of your sheet. These are the distinctives. So when someone says to me, are you reformed? I say yes, but we're not in eschatology, we are dispensational. That the, the kingdom is a means of the authority of God on man. The best one going, even though it will be rejected. The distinctives of dispensationalism are, and I'm going to do these and pray. Number one, the periods change according to the continual sin of man. Are you with me? If you've listened these last, this last hour, this should be repetitive. The kingdoms change according to the continual sin of man. It's not a cosmic tennis match between equal and opposite forces of good and evil. It is God giving man rope and man hanging himself. Number two, salvation never changes. God love them, but a lot of reformed guys say, you dispensationalists show seven different means of salvation. No, from the Garden of Eden to the kingdom, salvation is through the mercy of God and the atonement 
of a mediator. Number three, the content of your faith does change. This is called progressive revelation. The guys in the Old Testament did not understand that there would be a Savior dying from the, and rising from the dead named Jesus from Bethlehem. If they would have, the apostles, when Jesus said he was going to go up to Jerusalem, be crucified, betrayed, and killed, and rise from the dead, they would have said, you're right on time. We've been expecting this. But they didn't. So the content of your faith gets brighter and brighter and brighter. You and I are called those to whom the ends of the ages have come. The kingdom are those who behold him face to face. So the content of faith gets brighter. But the, the basis of faith is always atonement. You're always saved by grace. Number four, history heads to a point, the kingdom. The Bible is a historical narrative. That's why I'm dispensational. Because I believe that God is the God of history as well as heaven. And that history will end up in God's rule upon men and his judgment of those who resist him. So dispensationalism heads to a point in history, not an allegory. Number five, the scripture and dispensationalism is taken literally concerning prophecy. That's why when you read Calvin's commentaries, he's got great stuff, but you'll notice there's a commentary missing. Guess which book doesn't get commented on? Revelation. It was too difficult. Spurgeon. You ever heard me quote Spurgeon? Guess what you never hear me quote Spurgeon on? Revelation. You know why? He didn't preach it. He called it the Gordian knot. You couldn't understand it. So, Scripture is taken literally. If they'd have just taken it literally, and I don't fault them, I'm not sure if I had existed back in that day that I would have been willing to say that Israel will come together as a nation and ultimately be in a place to go through the tribulation and, and receive or reject its Messiah once again. That took a lot of theological chutzpah to say that. And a lot of them, it was beyond them. Number six, we hold that the promises and the covenants with Israel are binding. God will give them land. He will give them descendants that dwell on that land with a king from David dwelling with them. And the church and Israel are kept distinct in dispensationalism. In amillennialism and Reformed theology, Israel is the church and the church is Israel. We sing it in one of our hymns. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransom from the fall. If you'll watch me when we hit that point, I go, I don't sing it. There's far, just so far my musicality will go into bad doctrine. And there's a lot of other places my musicality will not go. Number eight, dispensationalism embraces and includes election and predestination. In every age, the believers are those like Isaac of old and Jacob of old are chosen. So dispensationalism does not look away from election. Dispensationalism is pessimistic toward man's ability. Man will not bring a kingdom, but it is optimistic towards God's faithfulness. This is why dispensationalism flourished in the 20th century, because there was such a need of an infinite personal God to do something about the mess of enlightenment thinking that gave birth to this century. And then number 10, dispensationalism has not been the predominant belief of the church historically. And it hasn't been. And I'm willing to say that. Uh, I will say this. Out of amillennialism and 
post-millennialism, the liberal denominations have arisen. Because whenever you take scripture and say that in time and space it won't work, but it works in not true truth, but religious truth, that is the foundation of liberal theology. Uh, yes, Christ came. Yes, he died. But not really historically in dying for sin, only in a symbolic way. So that's the, those denominations that have been amillennial and postmillennial ended up, a lot of them, as liberal. Dispensationalism doesn't produce liberalism because we're literal in our approach of it. What we do produce is not liberals, but crazy people. We do. There's always a guy in Tennessee in a robe and a snake waiting for Jesus. I'm sorry. And number 11, it is. We produce nuts. In Waco, Texas, I grew up with a place. I ain't got time on this. All right. They were called the Branch Davidians. You ever heard of them? Well, they were a split off of the Branch Davidians that were a split off of the Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist. They were looking for the coming. They were a split off of a crazy Baptist guy called William Miller. So we produce crazy people. And number 11, it presents the chief end of the decree of God as his glory in all of history. Reformed theology, the chief end of Reformed theology is the glory of God and his salvation of the elect. In dispensationalism, it is broader. It is the glory of God in his salvation of the elect, his rule upon the earth, his faithfulness to Israel, his judgment of all mankind to the visage of the enlightened angelic host at what he does. It's broad, it's not narrow. I'm sorry, but I don't think that Tom Nelson and you are the center point of all that God is doing throughout eternity. I think we're part of it, we're a facet of the totality of his work. I'm done. What do I do now? Charlie, where are you? I got no more Bible. Come up here and sing or do something. While they're coming, pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, I pray that our church might understand why we understand as we do about the Bible. Why we teach as we do that Christ is going to judge Christ is going to return. Christ is going to rapture his church that he might judge a wicked world and a recalcitrant nation of Israel. That God is immutable and faithful to his promises with that covenant nation. That God will be faithful toward his work in all of creation, the animal realm, man, to the wicked, to the elect, to Israel, to the angelic realm in his judgment of Satan that you will be faithful in your work in history. And we hold these truths to be self-evident because of the immutability and the veracity of the Bible. Not just true in what it says about God of the creation before we were there, but what it says of God in the eternal state and of God in history to come. And so I pray that by this message this morning, we might have a lofty and glorious view 
of the God of creation, of history, and of salvation. And Lord, if there is one person here that has bowed their neck to you, let them know that when your patience is expended, that you shall gird yourself in a remnant of wrath. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.